This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And this episode is sponsored by 26 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to destination marketing organizations and members of the travel, tourism, and hospitality industries. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 26 team assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies through specialized solutions to elevate the overall understanding, strategic direction, and tactical implementation of impactful campaigns. You can learn more at 26 Digital, all letters, no numbers. 26digital.com. And now it's on to our show. Our guest today is our friend Ray Hoyt, CEO of Visit Tulsa. Ray has over 30 years of sports and tourism experience. He leads communities, clients, and corporations to envision the next level of every situation. He founded the Tucson Sports Commission and wrote the event management process for Disney Sports and oversaw the execution of over 200 events there, resulting in more profitable events defined by higher per-athlete spend and increased room nights sold per event. He also elevated the National Senior Games and most recently shifted Tulsa Tourism from a $1.8 million operation to a $7 million industry model. A relentlessly thorough professional, Ray's infectious passion fuels every project and unifies agendas through his common goal of creating a better community for all involved. Currently the president of Tulsa Regional Tourism, where he is responsible for the sales development and programming efforts of Visit Tulsa, the Tulsa Sports Commission, and the Tulsa Office of Film, Music, Arts, and Culture Divisions at the Tulsa Regional Chamber. He recently led the destination rebranding strategy known as Tulsa Inspires. It's a regional marketing and branding effort designed to positively promote Tulsa as a premier destination for visitors, investment, and talent. Ray is actively working on the implementation of Tulsa's first tourism-based improvement district and is convening and collaborating with community stakeholders on multiple vision projects like the USA BMX National Headquarters, Cox Business Center Renovation, and Destination Development Strategies for the Future. Ray Hoyt, welcome to DMOU. Thank you, Bill. I don't know who that guy is, but he sounds uh, he sounds like he knows what's going on. Sounds like he's killing it. Yeah, I know. That's you. And it's been 10 years, brother, 10 years since we first met during your first few months as CEO of Visit Tulsa. And it has been a crazy ride. What impressed me from the start about you was how you, from the very beginning, cultivated the biggest and most influential names in the region and got them on the tourism bandwagon. I mean, like within the first year or two. And this is no way a shot to your predecessor who had a great run, but she cultivated industry support. You cultivate corporate support. So before we get to your first three questions, what was it years before Destinations International encouraged its members to develop deeper community relations? What is in your DNA that drove you to pivot towards corporate rather than hospitality? You know, Bill, early in my time in Tulsa, I started realizing and did research on Tulsa, and it had a a very historic philanthropic and corporate citizens who really had given um, millions of dollars to Tulsa's development in the past for other functions, United Way. I mean, the traditional things that you would expect in a community with big foundations and philanthropic corporate support that corporations that have been born there, um, like Williams and and Schusterman Foundation and, and Schusterman Oil and One Oak and others. And I realized that they had just not been just engaged and or educated on what tourism, sports, uh, and now film and music could do for a community culturally, 
Um, we had all the assets in place, but nobody was really pulling it all together. And I think when I started working with Steve Bradshaw, who is now the CEO of Bank of Oklahoma, my first chair when I was there, Steve really started to take hold and was really interested in making Tulsa as a large employer with several thousand employees in Tulsa. He was trying to figure out how do I defeat the attrition battle and how do I improve our retention for our corporate headquarters? And when I started talking about what tourism brings to the community is not just visitors, but cultural activity and vibrancy and prosperity in a business market that's, you know, every place else I've been, you know, think of Disney's money, right? And you think about what tourism does for that community in Central Florida, and he really embraced it. And I always say that he, he kind of brought the four horsemen together, and that was the number two person at One Oak, which is a Fortune 100 um, energy company, um, Jeff Stava from the George Kaiser Family Foundation, and then... John Hewitt from Matrix Energy Services, none of who have anything to do with tourism at the time, but all really kind of bought into what Steve was working with them on. And that really kind of launched our corporate base investment program that's now, you know, in its 10 years and we still have funding through 2023 uh, already in place. So that was the key. And I think, you know, and then we also engaged the Indian nations who had really kind of um, um, not been engaged and not been um you know, recruited to support tourism. Even though they were in the casino business, I think they were really starting to understand that tourism was, again, a, a sister to what they were trying to do with, with gaming. It's a, there's more people in town for any reason, it's going to benefit them. Perfect that you saw that opportunity to reach out to that community because a recent court case shows that most of Tulsa is actually their land. I think it's always been their land. <laughs> A lot of people were afraid of that. And I think in the reality, it'll all be settled out. I think it, it was you know, obviously a legal issue. I've always built a great relationship with them. And, and I think that is indicative of my personality is I really work on relationship building and mutually beneficial relationships and not one-sided ones because those typically don't last. And all three of the Indian nations in the Tulsa area are huge contributors to tourism now because of that. Yeah. And I think that's the mark of a great CEO is, is a relationship builder. So let's get to your first question. So you're coming up in your 10-year anniversary at Visit Tulsa. When you stepped into the role in the autumn of 2010, your budget was 1.8, nowhere near sufficient to market a city like Tulsa. Job one for you was increase that budget. But in doing so, you also diversified your budget. So walk us through that first year at Visit Tulsa and what was going through your mind. Probably the first thing was, is I should have asked that question before I took the job. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I mean, immediately realized that the lodging tax was only 34% and we obviously changed that um, to 50%. But that couldn't be changed until retiring bonds, which we did the research on. And so immediately we... That took time. Yeah. So we, we took the board and started educating the board on our finances and, and the challenges for us and what that looked like and how we were being outspent in our, our market segment and the things that we needed to do to change that and to be competitive. And when we built that story and started talking to the, the CEOs of the community and the foundations, it was clear that there was, Tulsa had kind of fallen asleep and many of our competitive sets and even Oklahoma City was outspending us, they were outdrawing us. So when we started kind of talking about what other people were doing and examining how far behind we were, it was becoming for us to catch up, I think people started realizing there was truly an opportunity to change that narrative for Tulsa. So the lodging tax was the first thing. And we got the, the city councilors in one-on-one in -on -one meetings 
and showed them the data and showed them the facts. And uh, we got a pretty quick commitment out of the mayor and the council to remedy that and take it to 50% uh, when the bonds uh, retired. So that immediately took us from about uh, 1.8 to about 3.7. So we were pretty excited about that. So you say that when community leaders began to realize that they were falling behind, in my time with you in Tulsa, clearly everybody was looking at Oklahoma City, which has been a success story over the past decade, two decades. Everybody points to them. And there are those who say that back in like, you know, the 1960s, 1970s, your two towns were virtually interchangeable. They were like almost the same. And all of a sudden, OKC is, is you know, emergent and Tulsa is still kind of hanging out. Would you recommend that keeping up with the Joneses was a good strategy? Because we hear from, in some cases, that city councils go, ah, eh, we don't care what they do. You know, we got our thing going on. Because you, know, you want to say, hey, we're losing the battle here. But it seemed to work for you. Yeah, and I think we made comparisons to them and in aspirational cities like Fort Worth for us um, and cities like Little Rock and Omaha. And because many of our corporate uh, board members travel and their recruiting base um, is in many of those cities, especially Houston and Dallas for energy and for banking. And I think that lent to the fact that they knew they had to change something because it was really, a, I mean, for many of the corporations and even the city, it was about a talent drain that the, the community was having at a pretty, you know, double digit number, 20 some percent talent drain. Obviously people tracked that and we all knew it was going south and it was going north. As we worked to change that lodging tax shift, it was really focused on changing the narrative for the community. Oklahoma City was doing a great job. I mean, and I did use them as the stick. Depending on your market, I think you have to make that choice. But it clearly worked. Tulsa is a very different city that I would tell you today because of the changes. And we've invested in, I think, things that are true to Tulsa's core Mm -hmm. and kind of its historical kind of inspirational city that it was built around oil and and the, the roughnecks. And I think that's what's critical to our change and I would tell you today, 10 years later, that we're a very different city than, than Oklahoma City. We, we don't have a pro franchise per se like the NBA. We have AA baseball and USL soccer. But, you know, we have one of the best arenas in the country and it doesn't yeah. have a, a, a major league tenant. But it also sold 800,000 tickets to concerts. So we have a strong cultural background in music and the arts, you know, with the Philbrook Museum and the Gilchrist Museum. And now we have the number one privately funded public park in the world with uh, the gathering place. And and that kind of, if you look at what we've done, it's really been about making Tulsa a better place. And just along the way, by the way, a lot of visitors have enjoyed it. Some 9 million visitors last year. So, you know, in Tulsa's kind of true historic fashion, they're doing it for themselves, but it clearly invites visitors to come and enjoy all the art and the culture. We just got picked as the 22nd most food-obsessed city in the U.S. So I think the culture is very different from Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and now more so than ever. But clearly we use cities as a a bit of a a comparison to chide our, our leadership a little bit in the community. Okay. So question number two, you get the city council to increase your share of the lodging tax, and then you pivoted. You dove down to the essence of marketing a community and who benefits. And when you get past 
the way things have always been viewed, which is you know, room tax, you realize it goes beyond hotels. And you looked at Tulsa's number one corporate pain point. Take us through how you engaged corporate Tulsa. The big thing for us was the talent situation. And when you look at some of the corporations and American Airlines is national maintenance bases there and BOK Financial is based there and Magellan Energy is based there. And I could go on, there's several. And many of them were frustrated they couldn't retain talent. They would keep them a few years and then they would leave. Many of the talent said there was, they, they ended up traveling south or north to Kansas City or Dallas for entertainment. Uh, there was something that just had to be fixed. It was a core issue for Tulsa and the region. So when we sat down with the corporate community, and honestly, we leveraged the corporate community to help us get the, the lodging tax change, but then we leveraged the lodging tax change to the corporate community and said, now you have to invest as well. You have to shore up this financial situation so we're not living on a, on a, on a pogo stick. We're actually going to build two or three funding sources under tourism so that we have a reliable funding source. So the corporate community really stepped up. And again, we, we built a great communication deck uh, and a plan and a program to show them that what their money could turn into, and it could turn into vibrant sports events like the NCAA. We hadn't hosted the NCAA in 37 years. We built a new arena, and the first thing we did is we said, your money is going to help us bring the NCAA to town. And sure enough, we got the NCAA. We've had it three times since I've been there, basketball. We've had Big 12 wrestling. And when we started to producing these events, the Bassmaster Classic, we started our equine business went through the roof. And when we started attracting these events, the culture of the communities changed. People started believing that Tulsa could win, right? And Tulsa could be the place it was, you know, back in the 70s. And it could be culturally vibrant. There was enough to do on the weekends that you would stay home and not go to Dallas or Fort Worth or wherever it might be. And I think that changed their perspective. And it actually started to change how people and employees felt about their community, which was Tulsa. And sure enough, in our first year, we, we did a small campaign with the, um, uh, the four horsemen, as I call them. And uh, it was a $3.2 million program for three years. And, um, you know, we made about 60 calls and you know, some 40 plus corporations invested, including all three of the Indian nation casinos. And that was the first time they'd ever all kind of partnered on one program um, around tourism. They hadn't really spent a lot of money on tourism, but a lot on casinos and attracting um, gamblers. But this was really their first kind of big pitch into tourism in partnership with Visit Tulsa. It was interesting too, is that once we started producing events, even some of the corporate sponsors or the corporate investors and the casinos wanted to start becoming sponsors. So on top of their investment, they were saying, well, can I, can I also get in a sponsorship activation piece where I can give you more money towards the event? So we, it almost was like double dipping, but it was really truly their interest in supporting the activity. So we did the first campaign and, and we were creative. We called it Visit Tulsa 1.0, but you know, it was three years. And at that time, we felt like that was a pretty big deal. And in two years, just not even quite two years in, we realized we were booking so much business in front of the next campaign that we were like, our runway is getting pretty short here and we're going to have to start a second campaign if we're going to continue to do these events. Sure enough, 2.0 started up and it went to a four-year campaign. We, instead of going about a million a year, we were at 1.2 million a year and we went to 60 investors. So we doubled down, the activity was going through the roof. 
the ROI, um, we tracked every event we did with that money. We could show every investor the ROI on their money. And it was specifically to recruit, retain, and enhance events. That's been the core mission of that money from day one. And, um, you know, fast forward, we got into our last campaign, which was the Momentum campaign. And, um, you know, hindsight is, is 2020, but we did that with a five-year campaign. The board really felt like, you know, it needed to be a longer period of time because it felt like we just kept going back to the market for more money. So we set up a five-year campaign. And I can tell you that the third campaign was, it was different work. We had the momentum. The third campaign was really about what are you going to do with the money that's going to make even a bigger difference? So we went at it a little differently. And we talked about the, the reason we called it momentum was, look, you guys have put six years into this campaign and this investment in tourism. Why would you ever let it go? Why would you ever stop investing? Yeah. And put all that effort and all this activity at risk. You know, over a billion dollars of tourism industry now in Tulsa. And, and I, we weren't measuring it 10 years ago, but I can tell you it, that's robust. And it's getting better. And I think they realize, too, is that, yeah, as business people, you wouldn't, you wouldn't stand up a new company and then turn around and not invest in it anymore right. and then think it was going to be successful. So the Momentum campaign um, was led by two co-chairs this time because it was we did um, 102 calls. Uh, the goal was $8 million and uh, for five years. And we made all of those calls in about 90 days. Uh, there were days I did two or three. That's all I did. We landed 68 investors. Wow. And we exceeded our goal. We did eight point, almost $8.3 million. So like most campaigns, we had a big celebration and rolled out the number. But now we're kind of set through 23. And, and you know, Kind of the silver lining, the blessing and all that is, is with all that's happened here this this year, um, you know, we don't really, I mean, have to, we have to talk to our current investors and make sure we keep these investments in place for the next three years. But it clearly gives us a lot of comfort and room through this pandemic that a lot of people just don't have. And I think the hindsight in that is, is when you run a campaign like this or you want to do something like this, you know, don't do anything less than three or four years because... It gives you the ability and the comfort to know that you can sell three or four years in advance and not worry about uh, stepping up in funding. And especially if something changes like this pandemic, we would really be in a tough spot if we were trying to raise money right now for the next three or four years. Well, what I love about this is that you've, I mean, this works on so many different levels. One, it works because you're you're diversifying a budget and we have to do that. And of course, now we know we have to do that, but you knew that 10 years ago. Those of us that were paying attention, we all knew that we had to diversify our budgets. We were just too busy to figure out how to do it. And the next thing I love is that you figured out how to do it by essentially taking a page out of, I don't know if they're still funded this way, because I don't hang out with the EDO guys much, but back in the 80s and 90s, this is how EDOs worked. They went on three-year campaigns to their business community saying, well, you want us to be successful and bring more business, more corporations, more companies, more workforce to this town help us. And people would write, you know, they say, fine, I'm in for, you know, whatever, $40,000. And so, yep. okay, bingo, every year, a piece of that 40 is is forwarded onto the organization. And that's the beauty. And then on the next phase, look what you've done for the community. I mean, you have upped the image of Tulsa through events, through image campaigns, through all the stuff that you do, which really kind of opens the door in my mind to a new way of looking at how destination marketing organizations 
should function in the future. And that is that I think we get completely away from being a tourism organization and we are the marketing agents for this community, for every purpose, to every person. And that's just, in my mind, that's what it has to be. And you've done it. And I think that the Tulsa model is, is simply brilliant. Thank you, Bill. The beauty of it too is, is when you have the corporate support and the lodging tax, chaining them together is really critical because one, you know, in our city contract, we have to raise a million dollars a year in private investment. And obviously we've done that, but it makes everybody stick to the plan. And, you know, if somebody starts to derail something, the other party can step up and be like, wait a minute, you know, we're in this together. And I think that's all important. Yeah. So you've got room tax, you've got corporate investment. And now you're moving even further through the diversification funnel, working to establish a tourism improvement district. Now, they're never easy. John Lambeth will tell you that. But in your case, what has it been? Three years? It has really not been easy. So tell us what you've learned down your path that other DMOs, as they move down their paths, could benefit from. What are the things that have worked and what are the things that you didn't anticipate that popped up to stop you? You know, obviously, the, the, one of those, the old saying is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So, you know, we, I had studied TBIDs and TIDs and whatever you call them. And San Diego, obviously, was uh, California was something we modeled. And we worked with John from day one. I met John, and actually, it was, believe it or not, it was four and a half years ago, and did a seminar. I watched him in a seminar, and I was like, okay, there's my third finance mechanism for stabilizing tourism for the long term. Yep. So John and I started working together. Um, we ran a bill at the state level because the current business improvement district statute at the state level, it had to be amended. And we politically looked at the government affairs division with the chamber and worked with them a little bit. We took a run at one year and it failed. It got through the Senate and failed on the floor. And believe me, guys, the politics of that is an education itself. And it's no matter what happens, it's worth that education. All of us should be educated in how to run a bill, what that looks like. And if you haven't, that's the place you need to go. But in the second time around, in amending the state statute, we engaged 11 communities uh, in the state of Oklahoma, and they helped us influence their legislative members. And we also wrote a very strategic, very surgical amendment. We didn't write a big change to it. We just added a very succinct change to it, and it passed through the Senate and flew through the House. So that took us two years. And then the attorney that helped us write the language helped us craft the TID itself, the structure. And that went really well for a bit. And then there was a shift from 25 to 3% asked by the new mayor. And we really wanted to partner with the mayor on this because we were trying to do some things with their share of the lodging tax that are important long-term strategies, like the $55 million renovation of the old arena into 41,000 square feet of new ballroom space and some other things, dams in the river. I mean, there was a lot of reasons to do this. So we shifted the TID to 3% and we moved back on the lodging tax a half of a percent. And the board agreed to that and off we went. And we had the hoteliers pretty well set And then there was a small group that banded together that opposed it. And there was a lot of issues around how to manage it, control. And and I think every city that's done one's had the same issues. And John partnered with us, and we felt like we crafted the right statute for the city council and the mayor to approve. 
We spent a year crafting that and working with the hotels. Finally, we had to make a choice to go. And we wrote a tourism improvement district for a, a certain amount of rooms and above. And it passed the mayor and council and it went into place. And then one of the objecting hotels filed suit. And that's happened as well in many other cities. Unfortunately, the judge that was really on the case after several months uh, ruled against us. So there was arbitration and mediation. And then um, we didn't feel like things were resolved. So we filed a petition with the Supreme Court of Oklahoma. And uh, lo and behold, the Supreme Court didn't push it back down to the appellate court. They actually kept it. So we have, to this point, filed two briefs with the Supreme Court. And we're now, uh, they have ours and the opponents in hand, and we're now waiting for them to rule. So we're, we're feeling they well confident about our standing. And I think if you look at the law and specific criteria of meeting the threshold of even filing the suit and or meeting the threshold of 51% of the majority opposing it, they never met. And I think we'll have a ruling that will be positive. And that is a 3% tourism improvement district that will go to what we call TDMI, Tulsa Destination Marketing, Inc. And that is made up of our board and hoteliers. And they will actually manage those funds. In the statute, it says that they have to work with a certified and um, accredited DMO, which is obviously Visit Tulsa. So I think we'll, we'll know before the end of the year, and then we'll carry on from there. You know, it's always the art of compromise in these situations. And if I hear you correctly, and I think this is probably the case in a lot of communities, and I, I loved your solution to dealing with the opponents, the hotel opponents of this measure, is that they tend to be the smaller mon pas and the smaller properties. The convention hotels and the, and the business hotels totally get it. And they're usually on board. It's the little guys that don't think they're going to see any kind of a benefit. They don't believe in compression. Whatever it may be, they're opposed. And you thought that you had satisfied this contingent by saying that the TID only applies to those hotels of 70 rooms and above, which I thought was masterful. But it still came back that, that somebody decided to sue you. Yeah, so we did 110 over. When we looked at all the hotels that we were booking through clients, and you know, we're like most people, clients ask for, in bids, they look for specific things they want in hotels, and, we'll, and and obviously we don't pick hotels, we give them all the data, we put the leads out, and then the client picks the hotels. But when we did our research, we saw that typically hotels under 110 rooms weren't part of that selection process. Um, they're too small. So we really felt like we were doing the right thing and keeping the number that was, the number of hotel rooms that were truly benefiting from that activity. Um, again, it's America, so you can file suit on just about anything you want. Sure. So I still believe in what we did. I think we'll see what happens and then we'll respond appropriately based on that ruling. Well, congratulations on all the things that you've done over the past decade there. Uh, if, as I am uh, working with DMO boards in strategic planning around the country, we always have that moment where we have to talk about diversification of funding whether they want to or not, I force them to talk about it. And we always refer to the Tulsa model. So you always have that, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, it's time for the bonus round question. You spent time at Disney. Everybody I know that spent time at Disney has a story. And the statute of limitations has expired. So what is your Disney story? (laughs) Uh, 
when I got recruited to go work for Disney um, at the sports complex, it was an interesting uh, recruitment process to begin with. I was in Juneau, Alaska fishing and uh, I got a phone call at the Airbnb. I'm not sure how they chased me down in Off Bay, Alaska, but they did. Wow. I end up talking to somebody on the phone. He said, well, we'd like to talk to you. And I was like, great. I'm out here fishing in Alaska. I'll be home in a couple of weeks. I'll get back to you. And they said, no, we want to talk to you in like tomorrow. And I'm like, to, like, do what? And he goes, yeah, we'll, we'll fly you down here. You spend the day, meet some people, interview. We'll fly you back. You'll miss a day and a half of your vacation, two at the most. I thought he was kidding. And uh, when I got back to, when we got off the boat and back to the house, there was an airline ticket waiting for me. So off I go the next day and leave my family behind and spend the day some Disney execs. It went really well. Reggie Williams, I ended up working with Reggie Williams Sports Complex, who he and I are dear friends uh, still to this day, who is an icon in himself. I think he just actually released his book. When the process came down to sending me an offer letter, Kent Phillips was the gentleman who was the cast member who was in the process of HR basically hiring me. And at the time, I had this beautiful um, Tom Selleck mustache that I had worn for most of my adult life. I was very proud of that. And um, in the final kind of closing moments of our uh, negotiations for my uh, employment, he reminded me of Disney's at that time. This was um, 96. He said, um, we have a um, guidelines for employees for presence and, and uh, you can't have facial hair. And uh, I said, okay. And he said, well, that, that means you have to shave off your mustache, Ray. And I was like, really? And I'm thinking like, you know, I said, can't, like, I've had, this is, it's a mustache. He goes, yeah, no facial hair. Wow. And your, your have to be at the top of your ears. I'm like, wow. You know, and I, sometimes I can be a bit of a smart ass. No. And I said, well, wait a minute. I said, uh, Walt Disney had a mustache. <laughs> Right? I mean, I was like, come on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, What did he say? Yeah, Ken's response to me was, well, Ray, and please don't take this personally, but you're no F in Walt Disney. So <laughs> you, you, want, you want the job or not? Um, and I said, I'll shave off my mustache. Oh. So uh, <laughs> that's my Disney story. That is really cool. So now that you're out of Disney's clutches, why haven't we seen the return of the mustache? Um, you know, it's kind of one of those things. You start to do without something and you realize maybe you just didn't need it, right? Maybe you didn't need it, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Great story. Hey, Ray, thanks for all you do for our industry. Your corporate funding model, honestly, it's a model for us all. And you could have kept it quiet as your secret sauce, but you've been sharing it far and wide for the past three or four years. So again, thanks. Thanks for all you do. Yeah, Bill, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers that this is where the best and the brightest get together to tell inspiring stories for DMO pros. And thanks, too, to our sponsor, 2.6 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to the destination marketing organizations and members of the travel, tourism, and hospitality industries. You can find more at 26digital.com. DMOPros.com is where you'll find more on our services to the DMO world, plus links to the Z News, our Knowledge Bank, videos, blogs, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, as well as links to earlier episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time. <laughs>